Welcome back to Focus on the Light, a weekly Come Follow Me podcast. This week, talking about the story of Joseph of Egypt, or as the play is called, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, Genesis chapter 37 through 41. I'm really looking forward to discussing these chapters. I, I really, really enjoyed studying them. So coming from last week, we skip over the chapters 34, 35, and 36 for good reason. Um, things happening that are not of great detail or consequence or anything that won't be taught later. But one detail that is in chapter 25 that I wanted to mention, Rachel, who is Joseph's mother, or Israel slash Jacob's wife, gives birth again, a second time to a boy they name Benjamin, and then she dies and is buried. We also see Reuben, the oldest son, lose his birthright because of sexual immorality. This is going to be important to mention because of the birthright being passed to Joseph, which I think is part of the reason that his brothers were jealous of him and, and plays a part in his story. Additionally, that will come into play later in, in future chapters, but we see that happen in chapter 35. I think I said 25, but it's in 35. So starting in chapter 37, we see that Joseph being young, he's about 17 years old, the youngest of his 11 brother, or I guess, I guess second youngest because Benjamin is born, but uh, of the youngest of his 11 brothers. But his brother, but his father loves him more and gives him a coat of many colors. Now, whether this is a coat of actual color or as the footnotes describe, maybe one of just long sleeve and it is a fancy coat. At any rate, it's a fancy coat that distinguishes him. It's more than just your typical coat that other people worn. So on top of this fancy coat that he receives, Joseph already is the individual to receive the birthright because of Reuben's actions. Even though he's the youngest, it is his legal, so to speak, right for the birthright. The reason for that being is that Reuben is the oldest son. The birthright usually went to the oldest son. Now, there are 10 other sons between Reuben and Joseph, right? So you might think, well, okay, maybe it should just go to the second son, who would be, trying to get to my page here, who would be Simeon. Or you might say, oh, it would be the second firstborn son, which would be uh, Bilhah's son, Dan. Or maybe it was Zilpah's son, Gad, or, or whoever you want to claim it to be. Or Judah might think that it was his birthright because of the disobedience of Simeon and Levi. At any rate, whoever had claimed it as theirs, it is actually Joseph's. The reason that it was Joseph's birthright that he would receive these things is because he is the second firstborn. Leah was his first was Israel's first wife, and her firstborn was Reuben. If that birthright is lost, it is then passed to the second wife's firstborn, Rachel being the second wife and her firstborn being Joseph. So although he's the youngest or second youngest, the birthright's his. Um, he gets a coat, and then on top of that, he comes and tells his brothers about his dreams in verses 5 through 11. He's not really helping out his cause. His brothers already don't like him. And then he comes and tells them his dreams. Um, and he says how he, they saw that his corn in a field, is in uh, chapter 37, verse 7, and how his corn arose, um, and then all of theirs stood around him and made obeisance to him, or they bowed towards him. And then later he describes the sun and the moon and all the stars bowing to him. You know, even, even when he tells his father, his father says, Shall I and thy mother and thy brother indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? 
right? So his dreams, he's kind of maybe getting a little rebuked for being arrogant, but I think in the way he describes it, to me, it doesn't seem arrogant. I think that he's just telling people about these dreams he's had. And again, he, he's 17, he's pretty young. But at any rate, his dreams, his fancy coat, his, his birthright, whatever it may be, his brothers don't like him. They decide that they want to get rid of him. So they conspire against him. They originally planned to kill him, but Reuben, the oldest, says not to kill him. They're going to throw him in a pit instead and leave him to die from the beasts of the field. Well, that isn't enough for them. In verse 26, this was kind of sad to me. One of the, the brothers and Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood, right? Not only did they have to get rid of their brother, they had to profit from it. So they sold him as a slave to Ishmaelites. They sold him for 20 pieces of gold, which was the price of a younger slave, him being only 17. 17 years old, he's sold by his brothers to be a slave. I mean, I can't imagine. His dad goes, tells him to go check on his brothers in the field, and he goes and checks on his brothers, and then they sell him. <laughs> I just can't imagine that. At any rate, he's sold. Um, and then moving on to chapter 38, we see the rocky start, uh, shifting from the story of Joseph briefly to one of the other brothers, Judah. We see the rocky start of Judah's family and his lineage. So at the start of the chapter, chapter 38, Judah marries a Canaanite, which we know is out of the covenant that's been made a big deal in chapters before. The significance of these covenant individuals marrying within the covenant and the Canaanites not being part of that covenant. At any rate, that's who Judah marries, and he has three kids. The first two of those sons are both wicked and are slain by the Lord, again, because of their wickedness. We see the story that happens with Tamar, who is the wife of the oldest son, Er, and all the drama and this big, long events that happens there because, like I mentioned, he's slain by the Lord. He's dead. And this thing happens between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because the, the custom was at the time that eventually became law under Moses, but at the time it was just a custom that if a son died or a man died, that his brother uh, would then marry his widow to provide a male heir for that individual. It was like a great sadness to die without a son because then your lineage did not continue. Your property would then go to someone else's family, like one of your daughters or, or relative or something like that. So the first son is heir and then he dies after marrying Tamar. And so the second son, Onan, which is his name, because of the death of his older brother, would then be next in line um, to, have, to marry Tamar and have children with them. The birthright that the son... So, so let me, let me redo this because the names can get me kind of complicated. What normally would happen is Judah, he has his birthright, right? Every father has a birthright that he passes on to his first son. He has a birthright that he would pass on to heir. Well, heir is dead. Um, under the custom at the time, the second brother would marry heir's wife and their son, whoever it would be, would receive the birthright that heir would have, right? So the birthright would still continue with the oldest son's family through his wife and the, the brother remarrying her. Well, Onan, maybe in his selfishness, didn't want the birthright to be passed on to his deceased brother's family, and so he refused to ha um, have children with her, and eventually he died, maybe wanting the inheritance for himself, but he died at any rate. Eventually, this drama continues, and 
Tamar, the the woman, eventually uh, eventually tricks her father in law Judah into sleeping with her, and she gives birth to twins. Really, really interesting story to get in the break of this story of Joseph, which is otherwise a pretty remarkable story of faith and obedience. We see this very difficult start, wickedness to to Judah and his lineage. And I thought, you know, what's the, what's the point of all this included in these chapters? I think one, I think it shows three things. One, it shows the importance of marrying in the covenant and the importance of keeping those covenants. More than just not marrying someone who had a covenant, they were betraying their covenant that they had, which was to marry in the covenant. And just the importance of keeping your covenants and the blessing of being married in the covenant. Additionally, it shows the start to the lineage of Judah. Jesus Christ himself eventually came through the loins of Judah. That was one of the promises given to him and his posterity. This family also eventually became rulers in Israel. Later in the Old Testament, talking about how Judah's descendants became rulers in Israel. So this really important family line has a really, really rough start. And I think it shows the blessing that other people's choices, that, that posterity or lineage don't, doesn't determine our worthiness. Additionally, the third thing that I would, I would say is just the importance of honoring your commitments and legal obligations and how not doing that can bring consequences upon you. There was, there's a lot of legal obligations uh, that Judah has with Tamar and the treatment of her according to the custom of the time that he does not fulfill. And doing that brings great difficulties to him and his family. At any rate, we follow up this very sad, immoral story with the next chapter, which is 39. We see the sad account of Judah and his sons giving into sexual sin and these worldly enticings, then contrasted with the, the difference that is Joseph and his bold resistance of those same temptations. So we see Joseph at the young age is sold into Egypt, and he's sold into the house of Potiphar. Now Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard of Egypt, right? So he's a really, really important person. The captain of the guard was kind of like the security person for the Pharaoh. Like he was in charge of the security service for Pharaoh. So he had a big responsibility. He would be in charge of executions, those types of things. Big deal at the time. He was a person that, that held up the law, so to speak, and uh, very, very wealthy, important person in Egypt. And that's the individual that Joseph becomes a slave for and, and uh, is an indentured servant to and, and serves under. Now, now, I think this is really great how the this, this scriptures point this out multiple times in the first three verses. In verse two, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph um, and talks about how he's a prosperous man. And then verse three, and his master saw the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So even though he's sold as a slave, he's blessed by the Lord to be sold as a slave into a wealthy, prosperous house in good circumstances. Then on top of it, all the work that he does as an indentured service is blessed and works really well. And to that point gets recognition from Potiphar and is blessed because of it. So even in a difficult circumstances, the Lord is with Joseph. Now, continuing the story, as many know, we eventually get Potiphar's wife coming to Joseph, trying to entice him to lie with her, as the scriptures say, to commit sexual sin. Again, contrasted greatly with everything we saw just the chapter before, we see how Joseph responds when she entices him. The first time, um, 
It came to pass, and this is in chapter 39, verse 7, it came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me, and, the, and his response in verse 8. But he refused. And then at the bottom of verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? His, he, he refuses, and his response is, you know, this would be really disrespectful and rude to my servant, Potiphar, your husband, but then more important than that, how can I sin against God? And verse 10, he hearkened not unto her all the way to the point where she like tricks him into coming in the room when no one else is there and grabs his garment in verse 12. And she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. He did whatever he had to do to get out of those situations, to refuse it, to leave behind his garment. A very, very righteous individual who was severely committed to doing the right thing and obeying the laws. And what is he rewarded for his righteousness? He is thrown in jail. Potiphar's wife claims that he was trying to rape her. And because of that, Potiphar throws him in jail. And I think again that the Lord was merciful to him here. Um, You know, in verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Potiphar, like I said, was the ruler of the guard and should have had Joseph executed. Instead of that, he was sent to prison, a very minor consequence for something that would be severe at the times, especially for the ruler of the guard. Now, maybe that was Potiphar just liking Joseph and being kind to him and understanding the nature of his wife and the nature of Joseph or whatever it was. The Lord was with Joseph and continued to preserve him. On top of that, when he was in prison, he soon became head of the prison. The scriptures describe him as gaining favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And because of that, he's appointed head of all those there. This is a serious blessing in a serious trial that one, he gets to keep his life. And then two, he's in a situation that again is blessed and prospered. In verse 23, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Whether he was working for Potiphar or working in a prison, whatever he was doing, the Lord was blessing his efforts. And I just love this. The Lord finds so many ways to bless us. Sometimes the Lord just does things for us, like we saw last week with the peeled rods and Jacob and his sheep, the spotted sheep being born. The peeled rods weren't doing anything. The Lord was just blessing Jacob with the sheep he needed to grow his flock. Sometimes the Lord blesses us through incredibly random circumstances, like we saw with Abraham and Isaac, having to say that their wife was actually their sister and the way that they were blessed by the leader of that nation. In the case of Joseph here, it's his own efforts that the Lord bless. And we shouldn't limit the way the Lord blesses us. He is capable of so many things. In this case, blessing the efforts of Joseph wherever he found himself, either as a servant or in a prison cell. But ultimately, what we should learn from Joseph is that our motivation for obedience shouldn't just be these blessings. It should be for the motivation of righteousness. And we see that that is Joseph's righteousness. That that is Joseph's desire to just do what is right. That's his motivation. And I just wanted to point out one other thing from this chapter before we move on that I really, really liked. Jumping all the way back to verse 5, when it talked about how his efforts in the service of Potiphar were really blessed in verse 5, and it came to pass that from that time that he had made him overseer in his house, meaning Joseph was made an overseer of Potiphar's house, and over all that he had. And the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. All of Potiphar's house was blessed for Joseph's sake. 
And it made me ask the question, what is the Lord willing to do for my sake or for your sake, for your sake of righteousness? What is the Lord willing to bless? I promise he's there helping you in your efforts, whether those efforts were like Joseph in a prison cell or in school with your homework or finding a job or dating or finding friends or trying to go on a mission or serving a mission or like me trying to go back to school and quitting my job and whatever it may be, the Lord is there to bless our efforts and I promise that he is with you. Now we continue this sad story of Joseph again Despite the Lord being with him, he was sold by his brothers, and then, when being obedient, thrown into prison. Still a pretty sad story. But the story continues and begins to have a happier ending. In chapters 40 and 41, we see the interpretations of dreams. In prison, Joseph is, the other prisoners that are there, is a butler and a baker of the pharaoh. Not just Potiphar, who we worked for earlier, the pharaoh of all of Egypt. Um, Not the pharaoh, but the the butler and the uh, baker for the pharaoh. At any rate, they have dreams in prison, and Joseph interprets them for him. And I love the the way that he interpreted them in verse 8 of chapter 40. He recognizes that it's from God. Do not interpretations belong to God. With his great gift, with his great prosperity that he had from God, he always had the humility to recognize that these things were coming from God. He interprets the butler's dream, who he knows is going to go back to the servant of Pharaoh and ask him to speak well of himself to the Pharaoh, that maybe he can be released from prison. But of course, the butler forgets about him. And so Joseph is stuck in prison for two more years because the butler forgot about him. Eventually, the Pharaoh has a dream that nobody can interpret. None of the great magicians or scholars at the time could interpret his dream, even though his dream relied heavily on their cultural symbols at the time, they still couldn't do it. And then the butler suddenly remembers Joseph and says to the Pharaoh, hey, when I was in prison, there was this guy that interpreted my dream. Let me go get him. So they bring him out of prison and he goes, Joseph goes and interprets the dream of Pharaoh. And his dream is where he sees Seven cows come out of the Nile River that are very healthy and very plenteous. Following them are seven sickly, thin cows. They come and devour the healthy cows, and instead of becoming healthy by gaining more, they remain just as sick. He has a second dream where there are seven ears of corn that come forward and are very, very healthy and plentiful, followed by tattered, worn-out ears of corn that come and devour those uh, and don't become any more plentiful because of it. The dream is interpreted by Joseph to be seven years of plenty and prosperity and food and and harvest, followed by seven years of famine, a famine so severe that it would consume any memory or remnant of the plentiful seven years prior. Because of this, because of his interpretation, Joseph is appointed to assist Pharaoh with the famine and becomes his second, becomes Pharaoh's second in chapter 41, verse 40. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. Despite his throne, Joseph was just as great a Pharaoh because of this. We see that Joseph literally goes from rags. In the same chapter, verse 14, they called for Joseph and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon and they shaved him and changed his raiment, right? So (laughs) he went from rags to riches in verse 40, where he is given so much. Uh, He's given rings and 
a bunch of fine linen and a gold chain. Literally a story of rags to riches, but he had to wait two years in prison. Because of Joseph's efforts and the Pharaoh's willingness to listen to Joseph's counsel, they prepare with food storage. They use the seven years of plenty and great harvest to set aside a specific amount to prepare themselves to store up against the seven years of famine that are coming. It's a great story of preparedness and the power that preparedness brings. Well, it's a great story about the importance of having a food storage and temporal preparation, which I believe in. I think that it's an even better story about personal preparation. Joseph was prepared for this moment. Because of his service with Potiphar, the initial individual he was sold as a slave to, he became skilled in economics. He was responsible for all that Potiphar had. Potiphar was a very rich man and had a lot that had to be watched over. In chapter 39, verse 6, the scriptures describe Joseph's responsibility um, with Potiphar. So chapter, I think I said chapter 6, verse 39 is the other way around. Chapter 39, verse 6. And Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. Meaning that he was only aware of what he was eating. Everything else, Joseph was in charge of. Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. The footnote for goodly means talents. So Joseph developed a talent for economic planning because of the work that he did with Potiphar. He was prepared to help Pharaoh through a temporal financial skill. More than that, he was prepared to interpret the dream. Not just prepared to interpret the dream, but then to assist Pharaoh more than that. To another point, besides his individual preparedness, besides his skills, whether that is a spiritual gift or a talent for economic planning, as the play describes, Joseph was also prepared by the Lord to be in the right place. If Joseph would have remained in the service of Potiphar and not ended up in prison, he would have never met the butler. He would have never interpreted his dream, and the butler would have never told the Pharaoh about him. That connection would have never made not only missing out on all the good that comes from serving the Pharaoh, but also he would have become, Joseph would have become victim to the famine like everyone else would have been unprepared without him. The Lord really was preparing Joseph. And it makes me ask the question and, and ask it to all of you listening, in what ways is God preparing you like Joseph? Preparing you with capacities and skills and talents to then assist in other ways and to use those things for your blessing and for the blessings of others in the future. Additionally, in what ways, even through difficult things like ending up in prison, is God preparing you to be in the right place at the right time with the right people? Joseph had so much that he was capable of doing because of the difficult trials, including being sold as a slave and prison. Those two things gave him capacities and opportunities that he would have missed without him. And then there's the other half of this story, and that's Pharaoh. Pharaoh was prepared, like Joseph, but in a, in a different sense of the word prepared. He was given a chance to prepare. He was warned, if you will. Given warning, a chance to ready himself and his land for a coming day. It would have been easy for him to reject Joseph's interpretation of the dream, but instead he listened and obeyed his counsel, and because of that, Egypt was able to make it through seven years of famine. Seven years of famine. They made it through 
because of his willingness to prepare. And so it makes me ask the question, in what ways is God warning you or warning us and giving us a chance to prepare like Pharaoh did? And there's many things that President Nelson have said that have come to mind. In a coming day, it will be not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost, is I think the quote, but I know that it's in a coming day will not be possible to survive spiritually without the Holy Ghost. I think that's definitely a warning and definitely a chance to prepare like this chance that Pharaoh does. We have this time to prepare now to have the Spirit for that coming day when we cannot survive without it. Are we taking that chance to prepare? And then this story in chapter 41, this section ends with Joseph giving birth to his two sons, Manasseh, and then to Ephraim, and then the famine starting, and Egypt having enough and be able to not only care for Egypt, but the lands around them being able to come and buy food from Egypt because of how well prepared they were. Now, carrying over something from last week, when Joseph gives birth to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, their names have meaning as well. In chapter 41, verse 51 and 52, and Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, which means forgetting. For God said he hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house meaning I have forgotten all the troubles that come before because of this goodness he experiences. And in the name of the second, he called Ephraim, which means fruitful, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So now looking at this whole story, I loved this first paragraph in the manual for Come, Follow Me. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Life teaches us that lesson clearly, and so does the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. He was heir to the covenant God had made with his fathers, but he was hated by his brothers and sold into slavery, and I'll add, at the age of 17. He refused to compromise his integrity when approached by Potiphar's wife and was cast into prison. It seemed that the more faithful he was, the more hardships he faced. But all this adversity was not a sign of God's disapproval. In fact, through it all, the scriptures describe the Lord was with him. Joseph's life was a manifestation of this important truth. God will not forsake us. Following the Savior will not remove all your trials, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf taught. However, it will remove the barriers between you and the help your Heavenly Father wants to give you. God will be with you. I love that. It will remove the barriers between you and the help your Heavenly Father wants to give you. I think about that line, God will not forsake us. I had a conversation again with Zany. She's great. She uh, asks questions in a way that really inspires me. But we were talking about the Savior and how the Savior, the only individual who is worthy of the constant presence of God, had to be forsaken by his Father for us. Because of that, because God chose to forsake his perfect Son for a moment, he doesn't have to forsake us because of that grace and that mercy that allows us to remove those barriers to receive the help from Heavenly Father. Joseph's obedience didn't remove the trials, but it did allow the Lord to be with him and to use those experiences for his benefit and the benefit of so many others. And I think about this, I really, really contemplate about this and about the story of Joseph. And I wrote in my journal, knowing how this story goes, did God cause a seven-year famine? just for Joseph's benefit? And I don't think that there's a right or wrong answer, but I, I was just curious. It really made me ponder, right? Was, was the Lord 
so much involved in Joseph's life that there was a seven-year famine just for his benefit. And I asked my wife and my family and my, my wife and my, my wife, Daisha, and my dad said it really well, that this was an event that impacted more than just Joseph. It impacted hundreds, if not thousands of people. And it'd be kind of conceited and ridiculous to profess that it was done just for Joseph. Instead, the Lord was with Joseph and used a negative experience to the positive benefit of Joseph. I was at this institute training that I've been going to when we were talking about Joseph, and someone coined it this way, turning a negative into a positive. I think that that's happening a lot around us. COVID it has been a very constant negative in many different ways and is still having an effect. It has caused so many negative effects and is still having one on many people from a, from a mental health and emotional health uh, standpoint alone. But I also look at the ways the Lord is using this pandemic and all the difficulties it has caused and the changes it's caused to further his work and also to give us opportunities to strengthen our individual discipleness and our worthiness, to strengthen the spiritual foundation of ourselves and of our home. That's definitely a positive that I don't think I would have felt without this. Having the sacrament, just, just from a personal standpoint, of the many things I've, I've noticed, having the need to have the sacrament in my home has had, it's continually, even though it's been a year, a year and a half since we've had to do that, where Daisha and I have been able to go back to church and take it there, but those moments, wanting to be worthy, working to, to be worthy to have the sacrament in my home too. And I remember kneeling down with my wife to bless the sacrament in our home and what that meant to me. That is an experience that I, I, a positive experience that continually influences me that I wouldn't have had without this. And more than that, from, a, from an even broader standpoint, in my life alone, over the past four years, I have seen the Lord continually using very difficult, what you could describe as negative experiences and circumstances, helping me turn them into a positive. Still in the process, some of them have already happened. But I'm so grateful that they don't have to just be negative experiences. The story of Joseph is a powerful representation of this truth described in, in Romans. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Joseph was sold as a slave. He was thrown in prison. But despite that, no matter his circumstances, no matter how difficult, he found a way to turn it into something good. This ability to turn, and, and to quote this manual, this uh, institute manual, this ability to turn everything into something good appears to be a godly characteristic. Our Heavenly Father always seems able to do this. Everything, no matter how dire, becomes a victory to the Lord. Joseph, although a slave and wholly undeserving of this fate, nevertheless remained faithful to the Lord and continued to live the commandments and made something very good of his degrading circumstances, people like this cannot be defeated because they will not give up. That is a characteristic that God is working in our life. I am so grateful that we have a God on our side who is capable of that. The scriptures that have been on my mind over the past month or so in Romans chapter 8 as well that I just share earlier, Romans chapter 8 is a great chapter. I recommend reading it. 
if I can turn to it. But Romans chapter 8, verses 35, 37, and 38. I like the way Paul said it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what you are going through, the difficulties, I think I said this, my, my wife and I teach mission prep to a group of youth at my mom's stake, and I said this to him yesterday. And I don't think they know what I meant. I said, I'm not envious of you in any way in what you have to grow up in. And they kind of laughed at me and I don't think they got what I was saying. I look at youth, even though I'm not that much older than them, but I, I look at youth and what they have to deal with of a, a social media world, an immoral, evil world. I'm not envious of having to deal with that and to grow up in that and to, to have to figure out who you are in that. But no matter what you are going through, no matter how unique you may feel it is or how incapable of good it is, the Lord is with you and his help can be unlocked. It's something we have to choose. We have to choose to live in a way that can remove those barriers to his assistance. It will not remove trials, but it will allow you to receive the mercy to not have to be forsaken, to not be cast off forever. As the scriptures say, I like that phrase. The Lord is there with you. I promise he is. Are you living in a way to make sure that there's no barriers to the help your heavenly father wants to give you? I'm really grateful for the people around me that continually remind me of that. Try to point out the barriers that I'm putting up for myself and how to remove them. But I'll just end with this great question that I, in the Come Follow Me manual that I really love and I, I wanted a way to put it in and I think as an ending is actually perfect. What can you do now to prepare yourself to remain faithful when you face trials in the future? The story of Joseph is a great example of the Lord being on our side, being with us, with us through trials, if we will just see him through. And I say all that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this. Hopefully you were able to enjoy it sooner as it's a little bit more on time. Uh, thank you for everybody who has reached out to me asking where these have been, encouraging me to continue to release them uh, and helping me overcome some discouragement. So thank you for being uh, helpful to me in difficult times. Thank you for being the hands of the Lord in that way. Once again, if you would like to share the show, there is a link in the show notes. It's a link tree that will you can send to anyone so that they can find the podcast wherever they listen to it. Podcasts are difficult. People listen to them a lot of different ways. So it can be difficult to try and share it on their preferred platform, the link, they can find it themselves. Additionally, you can just tell them to search Focus on the Light wherever they get podcasts. If you would like to send me a message, reach out to me, something you want to share with me, I would, I would love to hear it. I would love to hear your thoughts about Joseph or your thoughts about how the Lord is able to be with us in circumstances that are difficult, how he has helped you turn a negative into a positive I'd also love to just hear what you're learning from the scriptures, be that the Come Follow Me sections or anything else that you're reading. You can do that by sending me an email. It's always linked below, but it's just focusonlight13, that's the number 13, at gmail.com. 
focusonlight13 at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you all next week.